This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest is the British adventurer Bear Grylls. Born in Northern Ireland and raised on the Isle of Wight, Bear, a nickname he was gifted by his older sister, developed a taste for adventure whilst on excursions with his father. He started at Eton, aged eight, and found solace in a regimented world by making rafts, climbing buildings and exploring the sewers at night by torch. Later, he was accepted as part of the SAS-21, a horrific parachuting accident which left him with a broken back turned Bear's life upside down. While lying in a hospital bed with a poster in front of him of Everest, he vowed to get better and one day climb that mountain, which he did, becoming the youngest Briton at the time to do so. Since then, he's brought a number of successful television shows to our screens and cemented himself as Britain's favourite explorer. In this episode, we talk about the invaluable life lessons his parents instilled in him, the joys of watching telly in bed, and what one soldier said to him in the SAS recruitment process. One soldier said to me just before he quit, he goes, the difference between you and me is that you're dumber than I am. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> And he's probably a little part of him's right. It's a conversation filled with motivation from a man who continues to inspire. Bear Girls, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Hey, nice to be with you. Yeah, you doing okay? Surviving? Yeah, surviving just about as we uh, enter the bleak midwinter. Come on, come on. <laughs> It's good. I think he just designed us for seasons. It's good. Yes. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting actually, um, what you would think about this. But uh, you know, some people say as we enter into winter, we see all of nature shedding its leaves and, and almost setting up for hibernation. If you feel the same that humans need to do that, or do you think we're better equipped? 
Well, it's, it's funny. I think essentially humans are really bad with change. You know, mm. so many people, when they get anxious, they don't like change. I mean, what do they say? The only people who like change is a baby with a wet nappy. Uh, but I do think <laughs> change is important. I think nature's given us these seasons so, so we don't get stuck in these ruts. We don't stay in these stagnant ponds. You know, as you know, nature, water, if it's not flowing, if it's not moving, it's not changing, it gets stagnant. And I think we're like that. So even though the change of seasons can be challenging, and I know lots of people are kind of struggling to go into winter, I think actually nature designed it like that and, and it keeps us fresh, it keeps us on our toes, it, it forces us to confront change. And I think the more we confront it, the better we get with it. I mean, I used to be somebody who really didn't like going into winter. And I thought, and I just remember one year thinking, I'm, I don't want to live the rest of my life dreading going into winters because it's going to be a part of life. I'm just <laughs> going to change my mindset. And I think so much of life is like that. It's a state of mind, isn't it, how we approach it? So I now look at it as like a change is good. It's, it's, it's you know, all the, all the different things that winter brings. And actually, it can be such a cosy time, can't it? A nice family time. And so now I kind of love it. Yeah. And let's let's reflect on that. Winter is also a very good telewatching time. And I want you to talk me through what is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup. Well, we live a big part of the year up in North Wales on a little island. It's about a couple of miles offshore, old uh, old lighthouse on it with a with a old keeper's cottage attached to it. And we bought it like when Shara and me first got married years ago, and it's just been a wonderful part of our life. So uh, we're up here. Uh, the view out of the window. Well, when it's when it's a nice day, it's beautiful. But being North Wales, <laughs> yeah. it can get pretty wild out here. And we get a lot of wind and rain. I mean, the walls in our house are about a foot and a half thick. I mean, they are like wow. properly thick, which means in the summer, it stays cool. In the winter, it gets really cozy. Uh, we power it with um, wind and solar so we can make it nice and warm. And actually, it's great. So the short answer is the view at the moment is a blur of just because it's raining and there's water pouring down the window. So at the moment, it's not brilliant. But if you look through that, you get the sea and uh, and about a couple of miles over the waves, you get the cliffs of North Wales, a lot of seagulls always flying. And I love it. It's a happy place for me. So, yeah. When you're snuggled up watching telly, what do you like to watch? What have you watched recently that really stuck with you? Well, we have a really rubbish aerial reception on the <laughs> island. So we do, we now, I mean, it's all online. It's all through our laptops. And so we will often, Shara and me, quite like uh, watching on a laptop in bed. Quite nice. Cup of tea. And we sort of veer between watching what she likes and what I like. And then we try and find something in the middle. At the moment, we are thick into 1923. The problem is I go, I go away quite a lot. So... She goes, am I waiting to watch episode four <laughs> for three weeks while you're in this jungle? <laughs> or, you know, or can or, I just crack on? <laughs> so sometimes I go crack on. But 1923, 1883, we watched together and it was amazing. And we really loved it. 1923 is good, but not as good. So I'm kind of half going, you can crack on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave this one with you. Yeah. Do you like 1883? Have you seen that? I've not seen it. I've not even heard of it. Oh, it's amazing. It's the old pioneering across America, 1883, you know, how tough life was for those early 
wow. pioneers forging that way west, fleeing conflict from the Civil War, you know, um, Irish and Scottish and, you know, c- come over. And, and opportunity is all west. Wow. Uh, but it's hard life. It's hard, hard, lawless life. And uh, from disease, from, from the Native Americans, from the land, from the weather, lawless, but also kind of brilliant and res- rewards the resourceful and the tough. It's just a, it's just a great, wow. great show. And I think you often think you know what it's like back then, but this is a very visceral reminder of how tough those pioneers were. Yeah. If you enjoy that, you might like, I mean, it's slightly different and it's a drama, but um, The English with Emily Blunt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of people keep recommending that. Yeah, if you're into into that, I mean, it's just, I mean, it just takes you and transports you from the life we live now to Mm. an unrecognisable landscape, really. Well, that's such a big part of it, beautiful landscapes. And also the music in 1883 is amazing. And um, yeah, so, so that's what we're we're on at the moment. What would be your snack and drink of choice whilst watching telly? Well, if it's I'm not a great alcohol drinker, but um if it but I do every now and again, I probably we have a really big supply of a Welsh liqueur called Merlin. Hmm. And um, <laughs> it comes in a big black bottle and it's basically <laughs> whiskey. It's like a sort of it's like slightly less sweet Baileys basically. Oh. But it's it's very drinkable, <laughs> and you can, yeah, <laughs> it's a bit too drinkable in truth. But it's um, but it's great. Listen, a nice glass of Merlin with with some ice, winter evening, watching eighteen eighty three in bed. I mean, come on. Yeah, you're not going wrong there, are you? I want to hark it back to childhood. Um, so you were born in Northern Ireland, but grew up on the Isle of Wight. And I wondered, what's your first TV memory? Probably. Um, watching some of the old Bond films with my dad. I mean, we had a staple growing up of basically Christmas Bond films were family viewing. It's like the world stops, sit down, this mm-hmm. is epic. Of which, of course, it was. So probably that, followed by carry-on films, <laughs> <laughs> which are spectacularly un-PC nowadays. Yes, yeah. I don't know if they've aged that well. Also kind of brilliant. Yeah. And, and I have such strong memories of watching those. So probably a blend of old Bond films and old carry-on films. <laughs> yeah, did you did you watch a lot of telly growing up or were you more outdoorsy? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I was at... My dad had been a Royal Marine commando, you know, taught me to climb at a young age. We loved always going off on mini-adventures together. So that was definitely a big part of my childhood, was always being dragged out. Not always kind of, like, super happy about it, but... <laughs> always dragged out whatever the weather and I kind of look back now and my dad's no longer alive and I kind of so grateful for those brilliant times and that connection and it's where I, I learned about nature and I learned about adventure and I'm, I I love the bond with him and I loved it actually once once you're out there I love that bad weather I learned to embrace that but then I also have really strong memories coming back from school and always sitting at the foot of my parents bed and they had a small telly and you know it's four channels you know, it was yeah. like a, and a big button, you know, press one, press two, you know, <laughs> no remote control. And I'd sit probably, because the telly was close to the end of the bed, I'd sit, my knees scrunched up, but leaning against the end of the bed on the floor, telly about six inches from my face, big old, yeah, small, <laughs> but but that old sort of, you know, star telly. And, um, and it would often be that dull, you know, the dull on the static screen. 
Yes. And you'd have to wait till four o'clock for the programming to start and then boom, here we go. So quite strong memories of that, <laughs> which was slightly less exciting <laughs> than being outside, being dragged up things. But I, I also loved it, you know. I'd often go and make cake mix, raw cake mix, <laughs> in a big bowl with just eggs, sugar, flour, water, and stir it up and eat it raw. I mean, that was I mean, great. I mean, maybe it's prepared your stomach for some of the things you've had to eat later on in life. Listen, if, if the worst I was eating was that, I would have been very happy. <laughs> very true. <laughs> it's definitely got worse over the years, yeah. Yeah. You went on to study at Eton and the stories that I listened to in preparation for this um, really reminded me of kind of like an Enid Blyton uh, novel or something from Hogwarts. There were some stories of you kind of running around sewers, putting cards in walls to find your way back or climbing things, um, trying to get to the top and, and leave something there. Could you tell me a little bit about how you found school and also where you feel the kind of sense of adventure started? I think boarding school for me at 13 was, or at eight when I first went. Goodness, it's young. Was, was actually, I look back, it was scary. It felt, you know, I felt, yeah. felt ill-equipped really. And I think the only, I think I found, I found an escape through trying to keep a semblance of adventure in a world that was very regimented. And, you know, if you weren't just sporty or clever or a superstar at school, you got a bit lost. But I definitely found... I loved just seeking out or making adventure, you know, whether it was making camps or, like you say, exploring the sewers at night with, you know, with a torch. And, you know, I'd go with a couple of friends and we'd have these epic adventures, you know, making rafts to go down the, the river and, you know, all this stuff. So, I mean, listen, 95% of it was just you, you had to you had to put your head down and a mix of hide and work, <laughs> yes. you know, but in between the hiding and the working. Um, I, I love those sort of adventures. And, and still to this day, some of my best friends are from those school days and they often remember these stories and go, I mean, <laughs> what were you thinking? I mean, I remember Bear, at one point you were hanging off this kind of high building. We were trying to get up this thing and, you know, and there's so many great stories, but, but I loved it. For me, that was a that was a happier place for me. Sneaking out in the middle of the night and trying to climb up these buildings and up the drain pipes and working out a way of using the lightning conductors down some of these domes. I mean, there's the old library that was like this domed roof, and you know, I, I loved that innovating and being resourceful and figuring it out and the excitement. And it was a night mission, and you know, I don't know, it was setting me up well maybe for my job in the military and then many, many adventures since. So I look back on those days and um, and actually, you know, when, once you get over the fact that it was a school can be a scary place, boarding school can be quite a scary place. I think, you know, beyond that, the real stuff is always rooted in friendships, isn't it? Friendships yeah. and a bit of, a bit of mental training yeah. <laughs> and resilience training. And I'm really grateful for those times and, and the friendships especially. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway. 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire Leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. One of the things that I really liked, and I think it's a it's a great show of character, is, you, you know, Eton is one of the best schools in the country and I'm sure it was incredibly competitive or, you, you know, pressurised. You know, I've also had experience at school feeling that pressure of going to a certain school and feeling like you need to hit academic marks, et cetera, et cetera, or be really sporty. But what really shone through was you um, said that your dad was kind of less interested in academia or if you were the most sporty, but just wanted you to try your best at what you wanted to try. Yeah. And I look back and I'm so grateful for that, you know, and, and my yeah. mum as well. It's in a way, it's the best thing they gave me at, at, at a young age, a freedom not to have to be a school superstar because I wasn't, yeah. but actually reward just doing your best, as the scouts say, you know, doing your best, that's enough, isn't it? Doing your best and having good friendships and not millions of them, but a few, trying to be kind, trying to be resilient, trying to have a never give out spirit, not be scared to fail. That's a big one, you know, that yeah. I look back so grateful for that. I think so many people develop a, a negative pattern from school of like never tackling big projects because they might fail and mm. in a school they didn't want to fail because everyone's looking at them. But actually... Failure is a rite of passage, isn't it? You know, to yeah. get to the good stuff. So these simple lessons that life teaches us mm. was really ingrained in me from a young age. You know, follow your dreams. Don't listen to the dream stealers. Life's going to be full of them. And uh, and I've always tried to hold those qualities close. So I try and pass them on to our boys now. We've got three three boys and, and those those things never change. You were at university and on course to become an officer in the Marines, but you dropped out. Yep, I did. But I, well, ultimately, I made a decision. And, and, you know, for me, it's been wonderful because I've come full circle, really, with the Marines. I mean, I, d I did that early early application thing when I was 17 and mm. got accepted then for officer training down at Commando Training Centre Limpston. Uh, but ultimately, I suppose, I... I I wanted to see, I always wanted to do something slightly different. And when I heard that I could try and join the Reserve SAS as a trooper, not as an officer, as a, as just a soldier, I don't know, so many, as a kid, you always want to outdo your dad, don't you? And my dad had been a commando and I love the Marines and they're a wonderful big part of my life now. Like I said, mm. I've come full circle. I'm an honorary colonel to the Royal Marine Commandos now and I love that role and I get to see and, and hang out with inspirational Marines all over the world and always try and champion them. But at that time, I suppose I wanted to try and pick that path less trodden. Uh, I, I did selection at aged 20, failed first time, uh, 21 SAS selection, got it second time round. And, you know, that was in many ways the making of me at a young age, that not just the, the skills and the job that I was doing there, but I think also the, the friendships from there that last to this day. And also this belief that, 
I can look after myself when the chips are down. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. I can do this stuff. You know, I, I, I and that that's confidence, isn't it? And I didn't necessarily have it before then, and I think it, I built that confidence during those those four years I spent there, and and I never take that for granted. Love my connection still, you know, with with a lot of the people down there. So. Yeah. yeah, but it was definitely a conscious decision, I think, to try and pick the path less trodden in life, do yeah. it a little differently. And I'm grateful for that now. Something that really interests me, and it's interested me more as I've got more into sport and um, I see it more if I'm trying to push myself to a next PB or um, it's not actually for me, been a lot about the physical strength that comes with time, that comes with consistency. But what I've really seen is a, is a shift in mental change. Mm. And I wonder when you are in the SAS, that must really change your mentality to things and it give you uh, like I I always do it in the gym if I'm if I'm really struggling mm. I will say to myself right break it down let's do 30 seconds and then okay I'm here can I do another 10 can I do yeah. another 10 after that and and when I break it down like that suddenly I can do a minute but if I'd given myself the minute perhaps I wouldn't have got there maybe yeah. I would have well, you stopped. can do anything you can do anything for another 10 seconds you just yeah right. <laughs> do you think that shifted your mindset well i think the um the mental always drives the physical doesn't it you know certainly in terms of you look at uh sas selection everyone there at the beginning is fit and strong you know yeah. that's a given they're, they're all capable strong fit trained generally sort of prepared for it but ultimately at the end you know we had 120 start and four of us passed and we weren't any fitter or stronger really than any of the others i think just maybe a little more dogged and and resilient always mm. one one soldier said to me just before he quit he goes the difference between you and me is that you're dumber than i am i'm <laughs> done you know? and he's probably a little part of him's right you know i think some, but sometimes there's a time to be dumb isn't there sometimes mm. you've got to put your head down and keep going and it's like you saying with your gym stuff or your sports stuff you know you can you, sometimes you just got to block it out and dig deep yeah. there's another 10 seconds and another 10 seconds and we separate ourselves when the going gets a, a, a little grimmer. Yeah. That's how we distinguish ourselves. Do, do you stand up or sit down at that point? So I like that. And, and certainly in terms of mental, physical and mental drives it all. The reason why I wanted to ask about mental resilience is whilst you were on holiday and you were in the SAS, um, you did have a parachuting accident, which left you with a broken back in three different places. When your job requires you to be physical and you get so much happiness from exercise what does that do to you when suddenly your the simplest movements are incredibly difficult yeah definitely for me that time after my parachuting accident uh, back in the uk strapped up in you know braces and i was in this military rehabilitation center at headley court and you know it's a dark time because you take your physicality for granted it was such an inherent part of my life my upbringing my job my job in the military and suddenly i can't even reach a bathroom without agony and so that was definitely a dark time for sure but i think through it all i, I had an awareness that i'm so lucky i should have been paralyzed i broke my back in three places they said i was within a you know millimeters of fracturing my uh break severing my spinal cord and I was, but I was still moving. I hadn't, I wasn't paralyzed. I've been given the second chance. Yes, I've got pain, but I will recover and inch by inch and one step forward, two steps back, but keep going. And 
slowly started to get better. And, and I think it gave me just an, a, a gratitude for life that I didn't have before, an awareness that I'm so lucky to have a second chance. I'm never going to take that for granted. I'm going to live life, you know, total commitment, front foot. I'm going to go for things. It's like all a gift now is how yeah. I felt. And I've tried to hold on to that spirit ever since then. And I look back and I think, even though that was such a dark time, would I have done all these other things if it hadn't been, you know, for that time? And and I'm actually great, strangely grateful for it. I really am. And yeah. um, grateful for good friends and my family and my faith helped me through that time. But yeah, the, the, the storms that come in our life are hard, aren't they, at the time? But they're often the making of us. After that, you become one of the youngest Britons to, or the youngest Briton to climb Everest. And I wondered, actually, was that about hope? Was that about helping you? You know, did that seed to climb Everest start with a, a seed of hope that you would be able to return? Yeah, I think um, hope can be just hope. I think for me, it was more focus. It was like I wasn't hoping. I'm like all in. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> this is this is the target. This is going to, you know, I'm going to get not just strong enough to reach a bathroom. I'm not hoping to reach a bathroom. I'm going to reach a goddamn mm. bathroom. You know, I'm going to reach a bathroom on the floor above. And it just became like that. And I'm going to get strong enough to climb again. And one day I'm going to attempt Everest. That was a, that was a goal. That was that was a focus. And you know, whether or not I was going to reach the top, I was going to give my all. And it was a, a really difficult time in many ways on Everest we had four climbers lose their lives whilst we were there you know I eventually got that shot to climb it we were on that mountain for three months it's a long time but two of us reached the top and it in many ways changed my life you know I came back from that I left the military and I wrote a book on on what happened up there and that opened the door to Discovery Channel and Channel 4 and you know and then we're kind of away on this different path but you never know do you you've got to You've got to set your stall out first. You've got to try and be on that front foot and go for things and fail. And and um, and I look back and, yeah, it definitely was a turning point, though, that, yeah. that time. Can I ask, have you seen the documentary Sherpa? Have I, um, yes, I have, yeah. Well, I've watched part, I watched parts of it. I know Jesse, my son, was watching it and I watched, watched a yeah. bit of it with him, but it, it was beautiful. It's basically about these Himalayan guides who risk everything to support climbers on Mount Everest. And I know that you've just said there that you lost four people in your climb. Do you think that there's maybe a side of climbing that we need to have slightly more awareness of or that, you know, I think one of the elements of the documentary is that some tourists go and they kind of expect, you know, it's bad weather and they can't climb and they still yeah. expect people to kind of go ahead. Um, yeah. That actually the realities of climbing, it's not just an easy trek up and actually it requires kind of this massive team effort and people taking risk. Yeah, for sure. And people always try and push the boundaries though, you know, so much of that high altitude Himalayan climbing has changed so much since I was there. I mean, I look yeah. back to, I was 23, it was 1998 you know, we were basically, there was nobody there. I mean, at this stage, I think 25 British people had ever climbed it. You know, it's like, yeah, it was a it was a desolate, barren place, really, even though there are other teams from around the world. It was tiny numbers still. And I think over the last 25 years, that explosion of access for people who maybe don't have the skills or the training or, you know, it's yeah. just grown, isn't it? And then people were paying big money to get guides and to get that Sherpa, huge Sherpa, Sherpa support. And and uh, and it's changed a lot. But I'm not one of these people who says that's all bad. You know, I think you can't stand in the way of progress. Uh, 
you know, it's just inevitable. Uh, but mm-hmm. there's no doubt the Sherpas are always, they're the unsung heroes up there. They're born at high altitude. You know, they're so strong at high altitude. Uh, and they, you know, they build whole businesses and, and build their reputation and their living and everything doing this incredibly dangerous, hard job. Uh, and, you know, I took my family back to Nepal last year, actually, because I wanted to show them and I wanted to get them to meet some of the Sherpas that have been a big part of my life. And, you know, we actually made a film on it for Disney Plus last year called Finding Michael on Everest. Yes, and, of course. And a great friend's journey to try and recover his brother's body from up there. And the Sherpas were such a powerful part of that film. And I'm so proud of their role and, and what incredible people they're on. And so many of my friends to this day are are Sherpas and I'm I'm proud of that. I love it. Yeah, it's just something I'd not I'd not really heard about it and I didn't really know that I guess with the experienced people it becomes a work together. But I didn't really know the kind of darker side of people just as always, I guess what happens is if people have slightly more money and can all those lines get more and more blurred, don't they? And, and yes. and then when people lose their lives you kind of question it and I've I've thought that a lot watching it over the last few years, but it's progress, you know, and some people do it really well. I've got great friends who are still Everest guides, you know, Kenton Cool is one of them, who's very smart about all of this debate. And, and um, yeah, it's interesting. For you, when you put yourself in some incredibly dangerous situations over the course of your career, and here I'm talking about your TV career, although I'm sure SAS, you're also in dangerous situations. How do you toe the line in your head between when to stop, you know, for example, say with your family? Um, Are there any situations where you can think like, actually, I I had to withdraw from that? Yeah, I think there's, first of all, there is risk always involved in in my job, as in many people's jobs out there. I think our, our role, if you have a job that is has inherent danger there, is you've got you to be smart. You know, you, mm. in the wild, you only get it wrong once, and that covers the job of being mountain guides or high rope access stuff or, you know, adventure stuff. You've got to be smart. You'll only get it wrong once. The wild will punish you. So I think the thing of leaving ego behind, and, and if there's doubt, there's no doubt, there's always another route down or route up, you know, and especially, I think, for me, we're running wild where I'm taking rookies away, you know, taking... Yeah. I mean, they might be Hollywood actors, but they've never they've never climbed a mountain. And, but in the wild, they're just them. Yeah, you know? and you, you've got to account for that and you've got to anticipate them making mistakes as well. And so I think often, um, often on running wild, the guests are... On one hand, they're going, wow, this is a lean, fast team and we move at a million miles an hour. But at the second, on the other hand, they also say, I really notice the way I'm, you're never pushing into dangerous stuff always like feeling it and if it's like hold on let's just think about this a bit more maybe there's another way and and I always back everything up even though you know it looks like super tenuous and we're just shooting an arrow across here and tying the rope and going across it which is true but I'll always back it up you know always back it up you've got to anticipate stuff and so I think what have I learned about risk is yeah, you only get it wrong once. Be smart. Listen to that inner voice. It's a no, nose of the mind is our, our instinct. Nose of the mind. After the series uh, Man vs. Wild became a success and you were working with Discovery, I found it really interesting that you decided to take the show 
quit Discovery and pitch it to an American network. And I think why I find that so interesting, we're often fed a narrative, especially when big corporations own something, that the success comes because of them and, and their backing. And it feels very much that you live by this motto, who dares wins, and if you feel the fear, do it anyway. Do you think that your success is because you've taken those moments? Well, I've known the times to take the risks and I've known the times to kind of hold back. And I do feel that's the the wisdom of life, isn't it? That we learn with time and experience and it hasn't always worked out and I've failed a ton, don't get me wrong. But I look back and I think there's a time to push. There's a time to take that risk, have that all in who dares wins, never say die spirit. And I've definitely had a few of those. I think I think the early days of like Everest and, and the military stuff was like that. But I think in terms of my TV career, you're right, that time where I quit a hit show because I wanted to build a new show. I wanted to own it. I wanted to produce it ourselves. I wanted to pitch it to a big network and go for it. Was that was a high risk strategy at the time, and had all all the agents I worked with were going, "Well, you get this wrong, you'll never work again." And and I end up quitting all the agents and just going solo. And I built a team around me, and we went for it. And we eventually got that first show on NBC. And it, and but it actually that didn't work, and it got cancelled after a season. It was like, "Oh, what are we going to do?" And but on the back of failures and risk came the good stuff and then we kicked into running wild and that's what opened the doors to all the other you know whether it's netflix stuff or amazon shows or whatever you know that you you, you only need one or two to work but mm. there'd be many failures behind that and in many ways now i'm risk i'm much more risk averse with other stuff because i know i know the times to take the risks and times to hold back a little bit and i think that is a judgment of life but i still try and predominantly live on that front foot of like you know, I, the, these doors, worth pushing this door. And sometimes you've got to kick it hard and drive through it. But uh, generally in life, I think we regret the things we don't do rather than the things we do do. And you've got to go for it. And what's the worst that can happen? You're going to fail. But there's, there, it's not failure. The only failure is when you give up. So as long as you're prepared to fail and, and be hit down and, and look maybe foolish but if you don't mind that then it's down to you and get back up and you go again and and that for me was always freeing and i i have that attitude still to this day you, you ask our team we work with in all of our different areas of life it's always like no let's go for it let's go let's go big yeah it's fine it's fine you're doing um, a talk with Tusk, which, for those who don't know, accelerates the impact of African-driven conservation, uh, funding wildlife conservation programmes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Can you tell me a little bit about what their work means to you and why you think it's important? Well, I see the front line of, of climate change and conservation all around the world in my work. And it's not always just about wildlife. It's about the communities around the wildlife and protecting habitats and people. And I, I've just always loved the work that Tusk Conservation do. So every now and again to do an event like this for Tusk, we're doing it at the Royal Geographical Society on the 8th of December. To do an event for them, raise money and, and awareness for them is a privilege. I get to meet such incredible people working the front line of conservation and I'm proud to champion them. So yeah, it should be a, should be a fun evening. Let's talk about your live shows. Uh, what can viewers expect? And do you get nervous? I do get nervous, of course, you know, and I think if you, if you, nerves are good, they're there to keep us sharp, aren't they? So I've learned 
to not be scared of the nerves. They're part of life and nature gives it to you. So um, I'm always nervous speaking and doing these sort of things. Doing a live show is always committing. We're only doing seven venues, seven nights in April, all over the UK. But it's just bringing all the great stories and all the behind the scenes and the cool clips and, you know, great pictures and the the, the stories and the the failures and the struggles as much as the wins and, uh, and and, and the summits. So all the stories, what's it like being bitten by snakes? What's it like eating the maggots? <laughs> what's it like running wild with President Obama and all these sort of fun things? So we cover so much ground. It's, uh, but yeah, it's a family show. Ultimately, I want to do a family show. Uh, we get so many incredible scouts always uh, coming to these sort of things as well. And I love sharing some of those stories. But yeah, all in all, it's meant to be empowering and, and leave people feeling like they can conquer the world. I think we all need a bit of that in life. Amazing. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. Such a pleasure. You take care. Keep training. Keep training. (laughs) Bear is an ambassador for the conservation charity Tusk. He will be hosting an evening with Tusk at London's Royal Geographical Society on December the 8th. Tickets can be bought at tusk.org. Plus, walk on the wild side with Bear Grylls next April as the iconic adventurer heads out on a UK tour to discuss endurance, hardship and the true meaning of never give up. Tickets are available now. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with a documentary maker, Louis Theroux, or my episode with chef Jamie Oliver. All can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing.